It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne. A better way of seeing the life that you want to live. And today we're going to be talking about fear. Ooh, fear. Fear is a fascinating topic. As, as you know, a, a professional in the field, it's one of those that really fascinates me because it's something that is so misunderstood. We really don't have a good understanding of what fear actually is and what it's doing and how to handle it. And it's, it's such an important topic, it's, it's basically chapter three of my book. And fear is, it's this overwhelming primal response to a perceived threat. But it's not helpful for chronic illness. You know, I know a fair amount about fear. Like all of us, I've, I've had some fearful moments in my life. You know, I've, I've, I've had some car accidents that should have killed me. And those are real flashbulb memories. I mean, I've got a flashbulb memory of a semi out of control swirling out of a whiteout blizzard just before it slammed into me. And it is as crisp today as 30 years ago when it happened. You remember that Inside the Actor's Studio show with James Lipton? And at the end of each episode, he would do Bernard Pivot, who was, uh, he was a French uh, broadcaster who did a lot of interviews. He would do his interview, his, his set of questions at the end, and one of them was, what sound or noise do you hate? I have an immediate answer to that one. And it's a weird answer. It's silence. But it's a very particular kind of silence. And when you're walking around in the city and you hear ambient traffic noise and off in the distance, occasionally you'll hear that desperate squeal of brakes. And then right after that noise, there's a pause, there's silence. And you're waiting to hear an impact or not. That pregnant pause in between the squeal and are we going to get an impact or not is the sound or noise that I despise more than anything else. Probably because I've lived through it on, on more than one occasion. And it's, it's paralyzing. Whenever that happens, I freeze when I hear that. You know, I've had... Other fearful experiences in my life. I've had guns pointed at me way too many times. Six. And, and truthfully, that's way too many for somebody who doesn't have a background in the military or law enforcement. <laughs> but all I'll say about that is when the, when the gun is pointed at you, the barrel really does look huge. You know, I remember my first bungee jump 30 years ago with the Oxford Dangerous Sport Club. They invented bungee jumping. 
I can I can still see you know this flashbulb memory of me perched on top of a crane, almost 300 feet in the air, swung out over the canal by the head of the river pub, there just south of Oxford City Center, as I swan-dived off. I'll never forget that. And I'll never forget my first skydive. It's 25 years ago now. Hanging on the strut of a Cessna, putting through the sky, Looking back into my instructor, who grabs my pilot chute, smiles real big, and lets it out into the wind as it jerks me off the strut. One of the most terrifying memories I carry with me was a time when my little son was injured. And he's spurting blood everywhere. And my dad, who is great in all sorts of circumstances, but has always had, ever since his time in the military as a young man, uh, a, a bad reaction to blood. So he's about to faint over here, and I, I've got her son, and, and, you know, I'm racing to the hospital. And then don't get me started, because that was a cure fiasco nightmare for a while there. But the thing that scares me most lives inside my body with me. My MS is the scariest thing in the world to me because it's taken a lot from me and it has the power to take a lot more from me. I have memories of a beautiful summer day out mowing and evidently I wasn't paying enough attention and I overheated myself and suddenly pushing the mower up the hill, being paralyzed and just falling to the ground. Fortunately, my mower has, uh, when you let go of the handle, it stops the blade or it would have run over me. And the pain being so overwhelming that I passed out. And there are lots of experiences like that. And for those of you who are listening who live with a chronic illness, you've had your terrifying moments as well. You've had terrifying moments as caregivers to your loved ones when they deal with their health challenges. And those induce fear. And we think of fear as our bodily reaction. You know, when we when there are certain feelings that we get in our body and we interpret them, oh, that's fear, right? So our breathing becomes fast and shallow. Our heart beats faster and our blood pressure rises, right? Our blood vessels dilate in our muscles, but they constrict elsewhere, right? We get pale or flush. Our pupils dilate. We 
produce fewer tears and saliva, but we sweat more. Our blood sugar rises, our insulin level falls, our digestion slows and stops. Our sphincter muscles clench and our bladder releases when we get really scared. Our immune system gets repressed, our tissues get inflamed, we shake, our spinal reflexes are disinhibited, our bodies get flooded with hormones, cortisol, catecholamines like norepinephrine and epinephrine, which is, you know, adrenaline, right? We get all amped up. Our emotions get heightened and extreme, right? It's called an amygdala hijacking. Lovely term. But we have difficult with emotional regulation and reactivity. So our emotions are all over the place. We're, we, we feel almost raw and fragile and exposed due to that constant emotional arousal. Our higher-level cognition gets short-circuited, and we can only think about here and now, and we're, we're focused overwhelmingly on the negative when we're fearful. It's called automatic vigilance. And we have a strong, overwhelming urge to do something now. Anything. And we know what that fear experience is like. The only problem is, everything I just described to you isn't fear. That's not actually fear. That's our body gearing up for an immediate challenge. The kind of challenge that our distant ancestors would have faced for thousands and thousands of years, where you have an immediate existential threat right in front of you that you have to deal with. You have to get distance between you and that saber-toothed tiger immediately. And you're going to do it in a number of ways, and we'll get into that here in a bit. But that's not fear. That's a challenge response. And it's amping us up so that we're prepared. Now, the only problem is 99% of the challenges that we face in this modern world we've created are not those kinds of challenges. And they aren't the kind of challenges that can be handled in that way. But that's the only tool we've got. <laughs> we've got one tool. We've got that challenge response, that threat response tool and we're trying to make it do all sorts of things. And the other issue here, when we talk about a chronic illness, chronic illness is lasting and repeated trauma. And every time that happens, this response gets kicked on. 
but it's for acute challenges. It's for it's for small, discrete, little challenges right here and right now. It's not for time after time after time after time ongoing challenges. So the first thing I want you to reflect on as we go to break is that what you think is fear is not. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life So we've all got this really strong preconception in our mind based on our experience about what fear is. And then, perversely, our culture does everything that it possibly can to deny fear's existence. No fear, dude. That's just silly. Fear is a real thing. Fear is useful. Fear is trying to be helpful. The only problem is, as I said, fear is primal. Fear is ancient. Fear is kind of stupid. Because it's shutting down your frontal cortex, right? It's You've got that amygdala hijacking going on. So it's not real clever. But it's really well-meaning. And it's very, very, very insistent. So we have to acknowledge fear in order to deal with it. And we have to understand that every time we're faced with a stressful or potentially traumatic experience or just something we think might be, something that's unknown, and trust me, we're going to have more episodes coming up on some of this stuff, we've got this massive culture that's surrounding don't have fear. Be fearless. Fearless people get dead. I jump out of an airplane all the time. And I can tell you that fear is my friend. Fear focuses me. Fear is important. But fear is limited. You know why we have fear? It's one of our earliest, earliest brain systems. Long before we were ever human, we share this with all other mammals. One system even more ancient than fear is pain. So pain, that is the original nociceptive pain, okay? So nociceptive pain is pain when 
nerves in your peripheral nervous system are being damaged. So crushing, tearing, cutting, rending, burning, that sort of thing is happening to you, and you're getting an immediate signal, wow, this hurts, and it's, it's an immediate, urgent, insistent signal for you to back off. Now, what fear does is it gives you a tiny little bit of warning so that you don't get to the pain part. That's what fear is about. Fear is about, whoa, that looks really dangerous. It looks like something that has been painful or could be painful, and you need to be careful. And you need to get away from that. And so we have the fear response. We have that challenge response, the stress response. It's called the acute stress response. Walter Cannon identified it way back in 1915. And this ramps up our sympathetic nervous system. And, and you know, as I said, we share it with all of the vertebrates. You know, not just mammals, all of the vertebrates. And it's the first stage of Hans Selye's general adaptation syndrome. And this is the stuff I'm going to gloss over because we're going to go deep into it in a, an upcoming episode here. And, and, but it's called this fight-or-flight response. Colloquially, we know it as the fight-or-flight response. And its whole reason for existence is to help us avoid pain. So it's, so it's a really primal, powerful, insistent signal. And this acute stress response is the root of fear Anxiety, grief, rage, frustration, trauma. But it is also the root of joy and challenge and exhilaration and learning. And I promise we'll really dig deep down into this in in an episode coming just in a couple of weeks. Now, we call it the fight-or-flight response, but... That really oversimplifies what's going on here because it's not really the fight-or-flight response. It's the freeze-front-flight-fight-fron-fright-faint response. I know. I just threw a lot. Actually, there's, I think I gave you just seven of them just now. I use eight of them in the book. But freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, fright, faint. Every single one of these is about getting distance between you and a potential stressor or getting apparent distance. So let's unpack these real quick. Freeze. This is the first thing that happens when we get this response. There's a pause. And you know this. I see this almost every morning uh, when I take my dog out for a walk because there's a nest of bunnies in the yard under a wood pile. And when we come out early in the morning, Mama Bunny is usually out in the yard and Sanmo comes out and sees her and she freezes. Right there. What is this freeze response? We're pausing our senses. We suddenly get what's called hypervigilant, right? So our senses are opening up just in our immediate vicinity. 
So we, we lose track of whatever we were thinking of at the, uh, at the moment, and phew, now we're open because we're trying to take in enough information to figure out, is this really a threat? And by the way, this is the root of humor as well, triggering that freeze response before you decide whether it's, oh, it's a surprise. i got to pay attention. Oh, it's funny. Okay, now I can laugh. What's the next thing that we try to do? We think, oh, this really is a threat. I'm going to front. I'm going to get big. I'm going to puff myself up. I'm going to display behaviors, right? That's because you're hoping that the threat is going to say, mm, don't want to mess with that, and walk away. Notice you're not ready to fight yet. You're just making out like you're all that in a bag of chips. Our next option is flight. So we're going to puff up and then run away, bravely run away. Because we think, oh, okay, uh, because the potential cost of running away is less than the potential cost of fighting. Okay, now we think, oh, this is really serious. I'm not going to be able to get away. Now we're ready to fight. Arr. Oh, no. Now we think it's a fight we can't win. So instead of trying to puff ourselves up and make ourselves big, or instead of really being aggressive, we're going to fawn. We're going to get really low and really small, and maybe we'll be so insignificant that the threat will pass us by. And if that doesn't work, now we're to the fright stage. And the fright stage looks like hypervigilance. Okay, it looks like freeze on the outside because you've literally frozen up. You are frozen with fear. But this is called tonic immobility, not hypervigilance. This fright phase, you are overwhelmed. And you're doing nothing. Because at this point, you are so fearful and so overwhelmed that all you can think of is... Please, please, please pass me by. And that's all you have. And then finally, the last one is faint. The feelings are so overwhelming that you pass out. I would also add here, in... The overwhelming majority of cases that, that I've been exposed to, this is where addiction lies. Addiction is a narcotizing dysfunction. So in other words, it numbs us or substitutes something else for the negativity of the world that surrounds us that we feel like we have no way of overcoming ourselves. And this is one of those things that most people don't understand about addiction. And so there's so many potential treatments for addiction, they're just wrong. This is what our fear response is. Our fear response is 
this layer of interpretation that we're putting on that physiological signal. So we, we sense a potential threat. We don't know whether it's a threat or not. And instead of interpreting it as a challenge, we interpret it as a threat. And now this system kicks in and we're trying to make sense of it and construct a response that will get us out of it. This is the fear part. The fear is what you do with all that physiological signal that you get. And notice all of these are about manipulating distance or apparent distance between you and the threat. This is great, again, if you have an acute, emergent, existential threat. But if you've got a chronic threat, you can see how our innate go-to tools are just sort of wrong. So, in the next segment, we're going to dig down into this and talk about some of these challenges for using an acute solution to a chronic problem. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. Now we have a much better idea of what fear actually is. And I mentioned before that we also have we also have this perverse culture that is devoted to denying the existence of fear, about being fearless, about having no fear. The problem is we really do have fear. And fear is such a powerful, overwhelming physiological and cognitive and emotional response that we can't just ignore it. If you, if you try to ignore it and repress it and push it down and deny it, then that's all sorts of other problems that you're opening yourself up for. You know, this is one of the reasons why I went back to skydiving. I mean, one was I'd had just enough experience with it that I knew that it was a really cool experience. But it's also a mental sport. Because you have to learn to function well in the face of this fear response. It's high stakes. You don't function well, you splat on the ground. That's why I always think to myself, before I jump, 82 seconds. My life expectancy is 82 seconds. Now I have to do something very right. And it is a joyful experience. And that's because the opposite of fear is not joy. 
They're not opposites. They're right next to one another. The opposite of fear is apathy. And if you deny that acute stress response in your life, yeah, you're not going to ever have to deal with fear again if you wrap yourself in bubble wrap and sit in a closet all the time. But you're not going to have any joy either. So when we experience fear, or joy for that matter, these are short-term responses. And fear is a short-term response to an immediate problem. But what if it's a long-term problem? If you are constantly ruminating on the fear that is an entirely natural and understandable consequence of life with a chronic illness, then you're going to keep triggering that sympathetic nervous system. You're going to keep going through these wild cycles. This is detrimental to our system, you know, in the long term. When you always live in distress, this is, this is really harmful. It, it, it harms our cardiovascular system, our, our neural system. It harms, you know, our endocrine system. It, you know, everything gets out of whack. And everything gets worse. And all of the things that you experience as direct symptoms from your condition get worse. This is why we had two episodes on mindfulness and meditation, right? Because triggering that sympathetic nervous system is the first step of that of that general adaptation syndrome that I, I mentioned earlier. Then you've got to rest and digest. And that's you've got to get your parasympathetic nervous system triggered again. And you've got to calm down and relax. But if you're always up here, you're like that saber-toothed squirrel in the Ice Age movies, right? You know, and you will certainly explode someday. You just, boom, and that's it. You don't want to end up that way. So if this is a long-term problem, if it is a problem that is inside of you and you can't get away from, your fear response in those circumstances is by definition harmful. Because you can't deal with building a good life in the face of chronic illness from the standpoint of fear. Now, notice I'm not saying you have you, that you should just ignore it. You can't. That's stupid. You have to understand it and acknowledge it and distinguish between that sympathetic nervous system response and the interpretation of it as fear. Those are two different things. Two different things. Because, I know you know this, you've had experiences where you felt all of those physiological responses and you've interpreted it as joy, as elation, as excitement. You get all excited, you get all equivered because... 
you are so excited because your body, your brain, your system is amping itself up for a challenge. And when you are faced with a challenge and you can perform at your best and succeed, that's some of the best experiences that you will ever have as a human, right? You know that. Same physiological response. It's the same thing. You're just interpreting it differently. This issue is the crux of many of our non-medical problems with chronic illness. Because chronic illness is inherently stressful. And when we interpret it into distress, fear, then we have all those negative consequences that follow from it. And time after time after time after time. And what does that do? That makes you want to withdraw from the world because everything in the world becomes fearful. Every time our symptoms flare, every time we face our limitations, every time we face all those collateral challenges to our conditions, we can trip this response. So we have to understand, I mean, this is really, you, you notice how that first step in that shorthand fight-or-flight response is freeze. What you have to do, and we'll get into this uh, in a bit, is, is make the most of that part of the response. That's the important thing. So... Our bodies and our primal brains, you know, our lower brains, right? They, they, they think this is a good solution. I guarantee you, your basal brain thinks that the fear response it's triggering in you is a dynamite solution. Yeah, this is going to really work. It's going to save us but they can only see this much of the world. It's really tiny. They're focused right here, right now, on, on surface things and usually on negative things. So it's only a good solution because this limited perspective is happening. The same thing that happened to our senses when we get fear, if you ever notice, you get really fearful, you get tunnel vision. You also get auditory suppression. You'll get a lot of noises that are like cleared out in your environment as you're trying to focus in on only the noises that matter for this threat. It happens cognitively as well. We can only think about things that are right here, right now, very concrete. We don't have access to that abstract thought to the big picture, to the long term. So if you are allowing yourself to stay in that fear mode all the time, you're tying one lobe of your brain behind your back, right? 
You can't deliver as much to the problem as modern problems demand. So this really loud voice in our head is saying, oh, this is a really good idea, it's a really good idea. But we are prone to misattribution errors. We're prone to coming up with with really quick, easy explanations for why this is happening that tend to be really negative. We tend to interpret the actions of the people around us in the most negative way. We also tend to see patterns where they don't exist. It's called apophenia. So we become more susceptible to conspiracy theories and and other sorts of just wrong thinking. So that's the thing I want you to understand going into this break. There are a whole lot of things when we're in the grip of fear that seem like a really good idea. But they're not. And you can't really bust on your primal brain for thinking that way because A, it won't understand. And B, it's really trying to do its best to save you at this point. So... You have to be much more gentle with it, and you have to acknowledge the fear, and then you have to get some distance, and we'll talk about what to do in the face of that fear after the break. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life, and we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life And we're back and we're going to figure out some immediate easy strategies that we can use to short-circuit those fear responses before they make things worse in their most well-intentioned way. (laughs) So the first thing we have to understand is that this is the process. Right? So this is what happens when we sense challenge. And one of the things that Mother Nature likes to do is reuse the same systems or readapt the same systems for other things when they come along rather than having a whole new method. So we use this acute stress response any time we sense that we're challenged. Physical challenge, cognitive challenge, emotional challenge, practical challenge, environmental challenge, social challenge, all of those. Anytime we feel challenged, the only problem is the body systems that it triggers and the kind of response it gears us up for is not appropriate for all those kinds of challenges. So 
you walk up on stage if you're somebody who has stage fright. Completely common. Happens all the time. You get up there, and now you are petrified. It is so difficult for you to say something. And you know that the best way to get through it is just to say something so you can get off stage. And yet, all of the systems that are geared up are geared up for you to face a saber-toothed tiger who is not going to succumb to your rhetorical flourishes. So, those parts of your brain are not engaged at this point. So, same fear response. Wrong kind of circumstances. Once you recognize it, the first thing you have to do is label it as a challenge response. This is not fear. Fear may be what you decide to do with it later on down the road, but this is the challenge response. And this challenge response is going to amp you up for certain kinds of activities. So, for example, you know, we had some, uh, now we've had really cruddy weather for the last few days, but before that we had like a string of some good days, so I had like three days of jumping in a row uh, there last week. And I went up, uh, and there were a couple of tandems, uh, you know, sitting there and playing, they're looking at me, because they always look at, at fun jumpers a little strangely, because what are these people doing here with nobody attached to them and their own gear and all that stuff? And Surely they're not doing it by themselves just because they want to. Must be some kind of punishment of some kind. But they were, you know, they were looking at me and, and uh, you know, smile. And, and you could see, you know, they were having that reaction. Now, do I have that physiological response still? Yeah, I do. It's not as pronounced because I've done it like 550 times now. But it's it's still amping me up, and I want that. I want that because it does a lot of things to my body that help me perform well in those circumstances, because that's a physical activity. But it's not the kind of activity that I'm framing as fear any longer, because I'm comfortable with it. You know, I put myself through kind of a twisted version of exposure therapy because one of the things I wanted to do coming back was get really comfortable with fear. I wanted fear to be my buddy, my friend, because I have to live with the thing that I fear most in this life. Now, I'm not suggesting that you jump out of a plane hundreds of times just to deal better with your chronic illness and the emotions that happen. I mean, you could. It's worked for me. But what I am suggesting is that you have to learn to recognize it, and you have to learn to frame it, and you have to understand this is a challenge response. Now, we can use that pause, that freeze. We want to 
extend that. And why do we want to do that? Because our primal brains think faster than our modern cognition. Our neocortex, our, our smarty pants frontal lobes are slower to the draw than the raw, visceral, somatic, emotional responses of our deep brain. So we've got to use that freeze to give our forebrains time to catch up and say, oh, there might be a little bit of threat here, but it's only this, right? Or here's something that I can actually do about it, right? Because fear isn't rational. It's pre-rational. I don't even like saying it's irrational. It's pre-rational. It came about before there was rationality. Fear thinks it's saving us, but its perspective is small. So you've got to train yourself to use that pause to say, oh, is this fear or a threat or a challenge? Because we've only got this one response, and we can't ignore it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. There is no such thing as no fear unless you're, you know... Those are different chronic conditions. <laughs> but we have got the, to use this one inappropriate response for modern life to get the best out of it that we can. So that when we're faced with threats that are non-life-threatening, speaking, having difficult conversations, looking foolish, skydiving, Really, the threat of death during a skydive is seven micromorts, seven in a million chance. It's like driving 50 miles on a motorcycle on the highway. But we've got to put it in place. And we've also got to realize that we've got this one response even for things that we cannot control. So there can be things that are real threats, like our chronic illnesses. But we can't do a darn thing about it. But what we can do is something about how we live through it. So those are, the, those are the two decisions that you're using your pause to make. Is it really a threat? What kind of threat is it? And then, is it something you can do something about? And then sometimes you say, oh, yeah, it's fearful, and run, run away, run away, right? But a lot of times it's not. So now what are you going to do? You're going to use, because you're recognizing that no matter how loud and insistent and convincing the fear is, and because it's so primal, it is all those things. And because it is primal, it is all of those things you have to know that it is wrong for your circumstances. And you don't want to beat it up, and you don't want to be mean to it. Don't be mean to your fear. Really, seriously. 
Your fear is doing the best it can to help you out. It's just got a limited set of tools. Be kind to your fear. If you try to clamp down on your fear, it will only get worse. You can't ignore it. You can't dismiss it. You've got to work with it. You've got to work through it. You've got to show it through your experience that it doesn't need to be quite so fearful in that circumstance. You can train it. you got to treat it like your little cave child because that's what it is. So we've got this one response. We can't get around it. We can't ignore it. It's going to be there, right? Just like, you know, every time I stand in the open door of an airplane, I think 82 seconds. And that, to some people, that seems really grim. I have 82 seconds left to live. But the cool thing is, I have 82 seconds left to live unless I do something really right. And I've got this. And when you're facing your fear, you've got this too. Because the thing you have to understand is on the other side of your fear, there is indescribable joy. So go forth, acknowledge your fear, work with your fear, direct it so that you understand it's a challenge. Be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.